I've conducted enough weddings in my life to be able to probably quote most of the major texts by heart. And you perhaps have attended enough weddings to do the same. So this morning, you're not going to hear another sermon that sounds just a little bit too familiar. Yet those familiar things are the foundation of what I'm going to be saying, and so you will, we will be referring to some of them. The last in our series, To the Glory of God, Marriage to the Glory of God. <clears throat> and I think uh, contained in this message, <clears throat> after having done several hundred weddings myself, and several thousand marriage counseling sessions, I have come to believe one thing, and I'm going to be talking about that this morning, that at the root of 90% or more of marriage disillusions, divorces, are rooted in the absence of intimacy. God's gift of belonging, in the words of the betrothed of Solomon in Song of Solomon, we read the words, My beloved is mine, and I am his. My beloved's desire is toward me. His desire is towards me. This confident knowledge that you are the exclusive focus of another's affections is what I am referring to as intimacy, the gift of belonging. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look to your word and we talk about an issue that is largely misunderstood and lacking in so many marriages and is at the root of so many of the the conflict and the divorce that we see rampant in, in the church today. A delicate subject, one that uh, may be painful for some to hear. And yet, Father, it's something that uh, needs to be brought out there and put on the table. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would enable me to speak clearly this morning, to think clearly. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will use what is said today, particularly, Father, those texts of Scripture that deal with this issue, that you would use them in our lives, sovereignly and independently. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, like you, I've heard the statistics about the state of marriage today, which reveal that there's statistically little difference between the dissolution of marriages of those who are not Christians and those who claim to be Christians. It seems as though being a Christian has really little, if any, bearing on the success of a marriage in the culture in which we live today. And as a result, God is not glorified. 
Now, I'm going to put in a disclaimer right here at the beginning. Everyone's circumstances are different. And it takes two to tango. There is such a thing as an innocent party. And nobody knows your, your circumstances. And if divorce has been a part of your background or whatever, nothing that I'm going to be saying this morning is intended to point a finger at anybody. That's just not the nature of the message or the topic this morning. What is often overlooked in statistics are the root causes of marriage disillusion. On the surface, which is where we usually see comments made, up here on the surface are issues like financial conflict, unrealistic expectations of marriage, the numerous home of origin issues that we drag into marriage with us, pornography-fed infidelity, dishonest and codependent communication, various addictions. All of these are surface issues that don't get down to the root in many cases. I have come to believe after all these years of ministering that underneath these issues usually almost invariably, is the absence of intimacy as defined in Scripture, which in turn renders us vulnerable to all of these surface issues. Now, I want to begin with why marriage in the first place. What did God have to say about it? I I suspect that perhaps most of us, much of the time, have missed God's intent for marriage. Mankind's oldest revealed need, the very first thing that God ever declared not good, was man's aloneness. From the dawn of creation, mankind has wrestled with loneliness, isolation, and aloneness. So what did God say? It's not good that man should be alone. There was not found for Adam a helpmate. God's first purpose and central purpose for marriage was not sex and the procreation of the human race. Number one was to provide helpmates companionship for each other, to deal with the issue of aloneness, isolation, and loneliness. Now, on the vertical level, for Christians, true Christians, God has provided the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, who goes with us through everything, no matter what, and the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Comforter who came after Jesus left for the lives of those who are his. On the horizontal level, God has provided marriage for most, not all. And so we read in Genesis 2, I will make him, Adam, a helpmate, and he, God, brought her to the man. 
and they became one flesh. Marriage was God's idea. God designed marriage. Now, in our culture today, our culture in general, and governments in particular, have redefined marriage. They can redefine it all they want. But marriage is a union of a man and woman in a lifelong commitment, covenant with each other. That's what God defined it to be. But it's this one fleshness where I think we have misunderstood or lacked understanding of what it means to be one flesh. Verse 24 of of Genesis 2 is the foundational text upon which all further revelation in the Word of God is based. It all comes back to this verse. Therefore shall a man, Ish, leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his Isha, and they shall and they shall be, we got a little oops there, they shall be one flesh. That's the one slide that I added later and didn't read after I did it. <laughs> Ish and Isha is gender specific. Two men and two women cannot, by God's definition, be married. Call it that if you want, but it's not marriage. According to God, it's gender specific. You'll see the word leave, underlined. What that means, guys and gals, is that there comes a time in your life where you pack your emotional bags and become independent. You are no longer daddy's little girl or mommy's little boy. You're now an adult and you become independent. And then the next word underlined is cleave. A, a, a joining that to separate would part would go with the other, like glue on a cardboard. Cleave so tightly that it would be heartrending to break, to, un, to uncleave. So, leave, pack your, then unpack your emotional bags into an interdependent relationship. Interdependence with. Independence from, interdependence with. And then I supplied the word weave. Because it, you know, it's, it's cool, isn't it? Leave, cleave, weave. It's, just, it's great. But it, it also gets to the point that one fleshness is a becoming. One flesh means so much more than sex. You can purchase sex with a prostitute. Are you one flesh with that person? In a a sexual way, yes, temporarily. But you're not going to become one flesh with her over a period of time, and it will not involve body, soul, and spirit. And that's what God intended, I believe, when he talked about becoming one flesh. I refer to it as one fleshness. 
from independence to interdependence to intimacy. And for intimacy to mature, it must be approached on a lifelong commitment of your whole person rooted in covenant love. Now let's begin with the basics of intimacy. And that basis is love. John said, not speaking to husbands and wives, but to us as the body of Christ with each other, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In scripture, we are told to love God, to love our neighbors, to love our family, to love our eternal family, each other in the body of Christ, and above all, to love our covenant mate. Whatever the relationship without love, the essential ingredients of honor and respect and integrity and dignity, the very things that matter most will never blossom in our relationship, whatever the relationship is. This is especially so, however, in marriage. The playwright put it this way, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. Without love, there will never be intimacy. It's foundational. But when we speak of love in our contemporary culture, there's a lot of, lot of fuzzy thinking. For example, love is a mysterious thing that can't be understood rationally. It just happens. Attraction, yes. Love, no. Fact, I can learn what love is from the Word of God. I can understand how to love. Love is defined in Scripture, and it is demonstrated for us in Christ. Fallacy number two. It is easy to love, requiring neither thought nor effort. I love by doing just what comes naturally. Natural is selfish and self-serving. It's all directed towards me. Fact, love is an action which I must choose to do. I can learn the actions of loving, and that is especially essential if you grew up in a home where godly love was not modeled for you. Third, love is an uncontrollable feeling. You are a helpless slave to it. Frank Sinatra, if you recognize that name, you're older than dirt. You're in my generation. He had a song that I know you're going to remember, Strangers in the Night. You know, our eyes met across the room. It was love at first sight, and the implication of the, of the song is they end up in bed that night. And that's what love is. It's just this irresistible attraction that you got to do something about. Love is an active power which I can control by my own will. We are not mere animals enslaved to instinct. We're spirit beings created in the image of God. Fallacy number four, it is most important to learn how to be lovable. Now that's Hollywood hype, that's Madison Avenue exploitation. The become more beautiful industry 
is a multi-gazillion dollar business largely built upon this lie. Rather, love is a power that produces love in others as I learn to give it rather than straining to attract it. So, what is love? Now, I'm going to go through the Greek words used in the New Testament for love. That's already been done done once, at least once in this series. But I'm doing it again to show how these qualities of love affect intimacy in a marriage. And the first one is agape, the highest form of love, the love that God is. And John said, God is love. A strong, stable mental attitude, always choosing the highest good for the, per- for the person loved. God's love for us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The features of this love, it originates in the will, not in the emotions. It treats others as God treats them. And it is unselfish, it is sacrificial, and it is from a serving spirit or heart. In Ephesians 5.25, one of those familiar passages, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why are men commanded to love their wives and wives are not commanded to love their husbands? Though what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But husbands are commanded to because in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that they are the head of the home. And as the head of the home, God holds them responsible for the welfare of that home. And love is an initiating love. As God loved us when we were yet in sin, he loved us and Christ died for us. The love of a husband for his wife is to be an initiating love. And the verb tense used here means it is to be a love that is constant, uninterrupted, unrelenting, and never in question. And it is initiating. It originates in the will, not the emotions. It is an action, not an emotion. And the fruit of this love is security. It is the foundation love upon which any successful marriage will rest. And it is the absolute central foundational key to marital intimacy. The second word that is used is phileo. A tender love of mutual affection and cherishing. Now in Titus 2.4, ladies, you are commanded to phileo your husband. Sad, but generally true, it's the wife who initiates this fragrance of of a marriage. Its features, it originates in the emotions, it's a friendly love of rapport and compatibility, it's a love of comradeship, sharing, fellowship, it's also the love that responds by remembering birthdays and anniversaries and sending thank you notes. Isn't that right, guys? Who does that in your home? Yeah, I know. What's the fruit? It's that mutuality, that sense of us, of we. It's the fragrance of a marriage, usually initiated by a wife. Now, the next one is storge. It means kind affection, but 
the root of this word is that fierce loyalty toward family. In this case, the family of God. As brothers and sisters in the family of God, there should be a fierce loyalty to each other. And in 1 Peter 1.22, love one another fervently. That's the idea. The features, affection among family members, a natural affection based on a sense of oneness and loyalty. You've heard the expression, blood is thicker than water. That's right. That's as it should be in our home. And the result of this love is a sense of belonging, a a belonging that is unquestioned. There's never a doubt that you're going to be rejected. It's forever. It's absolute. It's complete. And then the next one, eros. This word has been hijacked by our culture, and so we kind of tend to uh, shy away from it. And, and in its original, it's romantic, it's sentimental, but it is, a, in that word, is a desire to possess. In the Song of Solomon, Solomon's betrothed again said, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than, than wine. It is emotional, it cannot be summoned at will, it is a result of the previous loves being sent, set in motion. Unless the previous loves have been bypassed and it's rooted in selfish gratification. And that's how it is largely used in our culture today. Erotic love has nothing to do with what we think of and what God taught it to be in our text a desire to possess in the covenant of marriage. What is its fruit? Romance and a desire for physical union. And the fourth form of love, epithumia. The word thumia means heat. And it's dependent upon the context. It is either translated passionate love or passionate wrath and anger boiling over. And that's usually how it's used. The features, to set the heart upon and to long for, to desire someone strongly. This is just flat out, strong, passionate desire for sex in marriage. And the result... Passion. Now, for many in our contemporary culture, this powerful emotion has become the goal in itself. No different from a heroin or cocaine buzz or high. It has become the end of it in itself. And the other person in those instances becomes a tool to be used for personal self-gratification. Consequently, God's intended purpose for this emotion becomes immeasurably destructive. 
And because of the law of diminishing returns, such behavior inevitably not only destroys a marriage, but inevitably, because of the law of diminishing returns, degenerates into unspeakable forms of perversion. Needing to get a greater high, a bigger high, just like a heroin addict needs more and more and more, and so it veers off into perversions. When eros and epithumia, love, are expressed in sexual union, a bonding is begun. This bonding, also called a soul tie, was intended by God as a gift of God, a special gift, to bond two people in covenant relationship. And it can only be, be so if it is exclusive. I want to read from Proverbs chapter 5, who talks of this, this exclusivity. Verse 15, Proverbs 5:15. Drink water from your own cistern, and running waters from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the stream in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for a stranger with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Consequently, one of the greatest intimacy destroyers in marriage is the presence of multiple soul ties. One of the greatest reasons for early divorce in marriage among young couples today is the fact that many, in fact, it seems most, come into that marriage commitment with multiple soul ties already. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7 specifically deals with this issue. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you avoid fornication. God said that not just because he doesn't want you to have fun. That's not the purpose of sex. It is to bond two people in love, loving relationship that leads to deep intimacy. And you can read the statistics. When you shack up before marriage or have multiple sex partners before marriage, statistically, you, your marriage is in trouble from day one. And the likelihood of divorce is far, far greater. God is, has given some boundaries. And when we observe them, we're being smart. We're being wise. And God blesses. When we don't, we're asking for trouble that we didn't need 
in a new marriage. Now, what do these bring? Agape brings security, the foundation for intimacy, phileo, that deep sense of mutuality, belonging without question, romance, warmth, and passion. Physical one-fleshness built upon spiritual, emotional one-fleshness. All of these are gifts of God designed to bond, bless, and build marital intimacy. Now, we've been looking here at the foundation. How does one build upon it in practical terms? The dictionary says of intimacy, inmost, essential, referring to the intimate structure of an atom, the smallest particle of an element. In other words, physical physical intimacy is not at the root. The root is the person that we are, our soul and our spirit. That is where intimacy must begin. And as that develops and leads to covenant relationship, then the overflow of that, as God intended, is physical union and physical intimacy that's rooted at the core of the soul and the spirit. That's what God intended. Intimacy, as I've defined it, is the sharing of one's innermost feelings, thoughts, desires, dreams, hopes, and fears. It is an unveiling of the real you in a vulnerable way with somebody who cares. And then this is, I think, the, the, the significant part here. It's knowing as no one else knows. Every woman I have ever talked to regarding marriage longs for a relationship with a man like that. This is one fleshness, knowing as no one else knows. Intimacy bequeathed, and they shall become one flesh. Agreement of, and oneness of heart and mind and soul, as well as body. Non-sexual intimacy is inseparable from complete sexual fulfillment. In Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, we read, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Wow. For this reason, a man shall cleave to his wife and become one flesh. Ephesians 5, 28. In practical terms, it includes such things as focused attention, And I might add, that's focused attention that's exclusive for a man or a woman to even seek emotional delight or stimulation from somebody of the opposite sex apart from their wife or husband is just flat wrong. It is an intimacy destroyer. There's an exclusivity and a focus on your mate 
And I guarantee you, if that focus is right, the physical aspect of marriage will be right. It will be all God intended for it to be. And it will be fulfilling. Focused attention. Faithful actions. Actions that are rooted in marital covenant. That are sacrificial. Unselfish. And coming from a servant's heart. Future anticipations. Excuse me. (laughs) I'm stepping ahead. Forgiving attitudes. And I'll, I'll address that here in a minute. Future anticipations or shared dreams. And at this one, because I am now one of those who, who knows who Frank Sinatra is, I can look back after, over a few years. You can never say enough about the, the value of growing old with the wife or the husband of your youth. Now, I know that that's not possible for many here today. And maybe that's a hurtful thing to say for some. But in the context of this message, there is such great value in being obedient to the truth of God's word, seeking to develop intimacy in your relationship with the wife or husband of your youth in covenant that lasts a lifetime. That's how God designed it. And that's where and how it most effectively works. Now, as to the thing of forgiveness, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice be put, put away. Rather, in kindness and tender, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us, you will never have more to forgive than the forgiveness you received from the Lord, from God. God calls us not to bitterness and anger and nitpicking, though we've all been guilty of that. And that's where the oil of intimacy comes in. And that oil is forgiveness. I need forgiveness most every day. My wife does too, at least once a year. That was a joke. She too needs forgiveness. And as we are in obedience, have a spirit of forgiveness, eager and quick to forgive, it is so essential to intimacy And applied to marriage, I want to say again from a sermon I said preached not too long ago, forgiveness is never optional. Now hear me through on this one. Even if your mate becomes a serial adulterer, forgiveness is not optional. Reconciliation is. All obligation to remain married is canceled when covenant is broken. Matthew 19, the words of Jesus. 
You're not obligated to remain in a marriage where covenant has been broken sexually. Jesus made that real clear. Many times, however, you may choose to be reconciled, depending on the circumstances. But forgiveness is never optional. Whether there's reconciliation or not, to go on, you must forgive because you're the one that will not be able to go on. You will be the loser if you don't release that person through forgiveness. doesn't mean you have to be reconciled. That's a, a, another bridge to cross. But forgiveness is never optional. So, briefly, the Beatitudes of intimacy. First one, a growing oneness. A couple viewpoint. No competition or put-downs. And this oneness develops over time into a mutuality where personal needs and values are blended into a naturally supportive lifestyle. No wonder God said, do not intentionally become yoked with an unbeliever. Your values will never be the same. There will be a level of intimacy that you will never be able to achieve. A grand loyalty. One lady said, My husband is such a realistic person, he probably sees my faults more clearly than I do. But I know that he is always for me, never against me. So he gives me the security and room I need to grow. That shouts of a husband who is not trying to control his wife. And the unexpected but vital benefit of intimacy is that it raises a shield against unwanted intrusion. For example, critical in-laws, contrary neighbors, predatory office workers. Through the years, I've had a lot of contact with other preachers. And uh, every once in a while, I run into a preacher who says, man, women are always coming on to me. Instantly, I know what the problem is. He's sending out all the wrong vibes. I've never had that experience. When I am in a situation with a, with a, a lady who is vulnerable and hurting and needy, I'm very careful, quickly, to speak of my wife and our relationship. And, and I'm, I'm not sending out the vibes where someone's going to come on. So it th- doesn't happen to me. And it's not because I'm so ugly. It's, you know, it's, I don't care what... I don't care what Janelle says. I'm not ugly. She's always giving me a hard time. The trust that intimacy builds becomes so much a part of the fabric of a marriage that to not trust doesn't even enter one's mind. And the fourth beatitude here is a gracious trust. It's been called a bond of mutual reliance, so deep it is unconscious. I love the words in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find 
for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life, and vice versa. To safely trust. This, in turn, results in a reliable refuge where disclosure of hurts and failures is safe. Heard the expression, with disclosure, there is closure. And we need to have a safe place for that kind of thing where healing of pain is sure and where understanding of fears is assumed. These are what I call the Beatitudes of Love, which lead to where we began, the gift of belonging. We all need the heart of another as a home for our own. Solomon's bride said, My beloved is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. The passions of marital love will fade but only the shared trust of the heart will result in a truly golden wedding anniversary. In short, marital intimacy is the God-given fragrance between two people, holy, committed to, loving God and each other, integrity and honesty, mutual respect and honor, unveiled hearts, transparency, knowing as no other knows, a forgiving spirit, and a great sense of humor. Oh, how we need to laugh at ourselves and laugh together. It, too, is part of the the fragrance of true intimacy. You want God to be glorified in your marriage? Strive for the deepest level of intimacy possible possible between you and your covenant mate. Intimacy in marriage is the only sure shield I know against marital discord, infidelity, and disillusion. Intimacy, leave, cleave, and weave together a one-fleshness that only death can sever. And all the while, God is glorified in your home, in your church family, and before a watching world. The best thing you can do to speak of the glory of God, guys, love your wives. Gals, love your husbands. Father, I thank you that you have given all that we need to build a deep-rooted intimacy in our relationships. The values and the benefits and the fruits and the consequences are immeasurably good. And I thank you, Father, that you designed marriage to be like that. And I want to say, if what I have uh, described this morning doesn't look anything like what you're experiencing in your marriage... I would challenge you not to deny it or to despair or to excuse or to blame. I would challenge you this morning to just look at yourself.
God never calls us to change our mate. God never calls us to change our mate. But when we change, usually change will occur in our mate. And I would pray, Father, that we would each look to our own selves today. And Father, where we see, where we have failed, might we be willing to to confess that, to admit to it, and seek your grace to change. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.